have grace, that we have freedom, that we have life and life eternal. And so, Jesus, we praise you and you alone. Lord, I'm thankful for your word this morning that teaches us and it guides us and it instructs us about who you are and what you've done. And I pray today that as we as we look at the deity of Christ and we look at what he has done and who he is, and not just as a historical uh, figure from the past, but as a, a present reality today, Lord, I pray that you would move in our hearts, speak to us now. We ask and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You can have a seat. week four in This I Believe, and we've talked about This I Believe, what that means, what does it mean to believe. We've, we've talked about God the Father, Almighty, Creator of heaven and earth. Uh, last week, Pastor Adam talked about Jesus, the, the reality of Him as a, an historical figure, and, and all of the, the witness and testimony of that. And this morning, uh, we're going to talk about the fact that Jesus died and that He lives, the, the next few statements of the Apostles' Creed. And uh, there, there's a, a young youth pastor by the name of Greg Hinch, and he was talking to his son Matt about safely crossing the street, and he really wanted to combine this little discussion with a, a couple other things. So he wanted to incorporate the idea of sacrifice and love all at the same time while talking about um, the importance of being safe as you cross the street. So uh, he said to his son, I decided, or he said, I decided to make this little teachable moment an opportunity to have him choose between safety and sacrifice. Uh, I asked little Matt, who was a, probably about nine at the time, if I were to be walking across the street and didn't see a car coming and I was about to get hit, would you run out in the street and push me out of the way of the car so I didn't get hurt, even if it meant you would probably get hurt really bad? With minimal hesitation, Matt replied, well, that wouldn't be very smart. Okay. Um, I, did you know that there were 56 men that signed the Declaration of Independence. I'm not much of a history buff. I know some history, but um, I learned this this week. Uh, Of the 56 uh, men that signed the Declaration of Independence, um, their conviction resulted in untold sufferings for themselves and their families. Of the 56 men, five were captured by the British and tortured before they died. Twelve had their homes ransacked and burned. Two lost their sons in the Revolutionary Army. Another had two sons captured. Nine of the 56 fought and died from wounds or hardships of the war. Carton Braxton of Virginia, a wealthy planter and trader, saw his ships sunk by the British Navy. He sold his home and properties to pay his debts, and he died in poverty. At the Battle of Yorktown, the British General Cornwallis had taken over Thomas Nelson's home for his headquarters. Nelson quietly 
ordered General George Washington to open fire on the Nelson home. The home was destroyed and Nelson died bankrupt. John Hart was driven from his wife's bedside as she was dying. Their 13 children uh, fled for their lives. His fields and mill were destroyed for over a year. He lived in the forest and caves, returning home only to find his wife dead and his children vanished. A few weeks later, he died from exhaustion himself. I mean, sacrifice, pain, conviction, standing up for something that you believe in. And that's why what we're talking about uh, in these last few weeks and, and actually so far this entire year, um, the, the need for a strong foundation of our faith that will stand up even in the face of opposition and scrutiny. Um, it is said that Cyrus, the founder of the Persian Empire, once had captured a prince and his family. When they came before him, the monarch asked the prisoner, what will you give me if I release you? The half of my wealth was his reply. And if I release your children, everything I possess was his reply. And if I release your wife, your majesty, I will give myself, he said. Cyrus was so moved by his devotion that he freed them all. As they returned home, the prince said to his wife, wasn't Cyrus a handsome man? With a look of deep love for her husband, she said to him, I didn't notice. I could only keep my eyes on you, the one who was willing to give himself for me. Sacrifice, hardship, pain. You know, as we look at the next few lines of the Apostles' Creed this morning, that's what we're focusing on. And it's great preparation for Easter Sunday and, of course, other times when our faith is called in question. And in many ways... Uh, what we read in the Apostles' Creed it, and what we're going to look at today, it makes no sense. Um, God's sacrifice and love towards a creation that consistently turns its back on Him, God's love and forgiveness and grace extended to a people full of selfishness and, and pride and sin. You know, grace, the very definition of grace is receiving something that you don't deserve. And our God is incredibly gracious in that sense. But at the same time, as we know God's character and as we study His actions throughout the course of history, many of the things that we read today and that, that we learn about our God and about Jesus Christ do make sense. They, they do make sense. And, and, and he, he explains it to us in His Word. So far, the parts of the Apostles' Creed that we've considered are, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, the Maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord. And the next few lines say this, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, which points out his deity, that, that he was in fact God, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he arose from the dead. And this morning, we are going to begin with Jesus' death. We're going to begin with Jesus' death. And we learn throughout the Old Testament of the sacrificial system. Now, we're not going to have time to read all of it, but if you would turn to the, to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 15. Mark, chapter 15, and just have that open as we go through this point of Jesus' death. Mark chapter 15 begins with Jesus before Pilate, verses 1 through 15. And, 
And, uh, and we see that, that Pilate says to all of the Jews, it is customary this time of year to release a prisoner to you. And I give you two options here. I give you Barabbas, this, this criminal, and I give you Jesus. Who would you like me to release to you? And what did the people cry? Barabbas! Release to us Barabbas! And then they began to cry out, Crucify him! Crucify him! To Jesus. And so then, verse 15, wanting to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them. He had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. And it says that the soldiers led Jesus away into the palace. They put a purple robe on him. They forced a crown of thorns on him and they began to call out to him, Hail, King of the Jews! Again and again, they struck him on the head with a staff and spit on him. Falling on their knees, they, they paid homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they took off the purple robe and put his own clothes on him. Then they led him out to crucify him. And we know that, that after hours and hours and hours of accusations and being before the, 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 the high council of priests and then before Pilate and, and then the flogging and then finally to be led out to the, the, the skull, the hill of the place of the skull, Golgotha that at this point he, he isn't even able to carry the crossbeam himself and they, they grab a man from Cyrene, his name is Simon, it says, and they forced him to carry the cross. And then verses 25 through verses 32, we see they, they crucify him with a robber on either side. On, as a criminal, he is crucified. And people cry out, the chief priests themselves said in verse 31, He saved others, they said, but He can't save Himself. Well, praise God He didn't save Himself. It's not that He didn't have the power to. Jesus willingly went to the cross. He willingly gave up His Spirit and died for you and for me. That's grace. That's mercy. And then we see in verse 33, at the sixth hour, darkness came over the whole land. We sang about that in a song today until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? All the anguish and the pain that Jesus was feeling right there. One man ran, filled a sponge with wine vinegar, put it on a stick and, and offered it to Jesus to drink. Now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to take him down, he said. With a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus heard his cry and saw how he died, he said, surely this man was the Son of God. You know, we learn in the Old Testament and Hebrews 9.22 summarizes it for us the fact that the law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood and without the shedding of blood there is no forgiveness. That's why Jesus had to come. That's why Jesus gave up Himself. He presented Himself as a sacrifice for the sin of the world to seek and to save the lost. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. You see, we... 
we would hope for some sort of justice from another person who, who sins against us or treats us wrong. We would like some punishment to be, to be born. And, and God Himself, Jesus Himself, bore that innocent Himself while we were yet sinners, yet turning our back on Him. He died for you. He died for me. Jesus' death. The, the Apostles' Creed says that he suffered under Pontius Pilate, and this statement is included in the Creed to pinpoint the time in history that the event of the crucifixion occurred. It was very common in the first centuries after Christ's death to pinpoint time with a major political leader. Um, there was a census that was taken, and everybody was called to go to their own hometown, right? Joseph and Mary went there, and it was upon decree in the time that Quirinius was governor, right? Pinpoint that with time. It's a way for us to proclaim that, this, that, that Jesus was an actual historical figure, and we know that Pilate was a governor of Judea at this time. Josephus, a Jewish historian records several incidents in the life of Pilate which coincide with the showing of his character in the, in the Gospels. Um, Tacitus, who was a Roman historian, relates that while Pilate was governor of Judea, Jesus Christ was in fact put to death. The testimony of the Gospels and the statement of the Creed are confirmed by the Roman and Jewish historians. Jesus walked the earth. Jesus was crucified. Those are secular historians that are writing this down because they observed the truth that Jesus walked the earth and that he was crucified. It, it isn't some fairy tale that we believe in. It, it didn't happen a long, long time ago in a land far, far away. It happened at a specific point in time in history. You know, we, we kind of do that too, I think, probably, as, as we think about things, although ours are, are more probably recorded as images in our minds or video or pictures. But, you know, as you think of the presidency of Ronald Reagan, what is one of the, the, the largest national events that occurred under the presidency of Ronald Reagan? The Berlin Wall coming down. See, you can pinpoint the, the coming down of Berlin Wall if you know your history and you know when the president served year to year. You can pinpoint that to a particular time. It was a point in time on, on the historical timeline just as we can point to Pilate and we can say that's when Jesus was crucified. And I think also Pilate represents the part of the world that rejects Jesus. It was his actions in combination with the selfish and self-serving actions of many of the religious leaders in Jerusalem that created the atmosphere for the events leading up to Jesus' crucifixion. Now, we know that God is superintending all of this to, to fulfill prophecy. He's doing exactly what He said He was going to do in the way that He said He was going to do it. Of course, we don't point solely to them as the perpetrators. We too, in our sinfulness, are just as responsible for the death of Christ as those who were alive in His day. And in actuality, no one really forced this upon Jesus. It was why He came and He surrendered Himself to their actions. Remember in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus' prayer, when we know how much anguish and how much pain He was experiencing when He cried out to, to the Father, Father, 
take this cup from me. It, 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 it was almost more than he could bear. In fact, the weight was so strong that the Bible says that he sweat drops of blood. But then he followed that cry, that plea to God the Father with, but thy will be done. And he was obedient, even to death on a cross. At any moment in time, Jesus could have disappeared into the crowd. He'd done it before. He could have saved himself. He could have made them all dead. But he didn't. And you know, he did that for you. He did that for me. So, Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate and was crucified. Now, Roman crucifixion was brutal. It was painful. It was an unbelievable way to die. You know, the, the, the movie in the last, you know, ten years that probably as closely um, shows us what crucifixion was, was like was the Passion of the Christ. And I don't know if you saw that, but, but I remember when I saw it, and, and, and I, was, I was incredibly moved to, 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 to consciously see a depiction of the pain and the agony and, and that, that sacrifice that Jesus made for us. I mean, they gave the sadistic men who carried out this heinous act full reign, it seems, in carrying out the punishment. Crucifixion was a method that was created, that was invented by the Romans in order to punish criminals. And it wasn't as much focused on execution, although that was the end result, but in inflicting as much torture and pain as they possibly could in doing so. It was supposed to be a deterrent to criminals, and it very well may have been. We know, according to Scripture, that Jesus endured hours of accusations. He was stripped naked, whipped, spit on, a crown of thorns shoved on his head, forced to carry the crossbeam to his own death. The sheer agony of all that preceded his death is incredible to think about. And, you know, the executioners also often did whatever they could to sort of prolong the agony of this. And in fact, it, it, it wasn't the loss of blood that, that would kill you on a cross. It, it, was, it was asphyxiation and exhaustion that would kill you on the cross. And they often, I read this week, they would often put little, little seats on some of the crosses to allow the criminals to be able to sit and rest to prolong their life. And here is Jesus, the Lamb of God, innocent, being treated as a criminal. In the end of Isaiah chapter 52, in the beginning of Isaiah chapter 53, we find the prophecy of Christ's crucifixion. Something that in the day of the writing of that passage in Isaiah didn't even exist yet. I highly doubt the Romans read Isaiah 52 and 53 and said, hey, that would be a great way to kill people. He suffered under Pontius Pilate. He was crucified dead. On the cross, Jesus cried, it is finished. 
physically and, and spiritually, Jesus cried out, It is finished. He said to the Father, Into your hands I commit my spirit. You see, his life was not taken away from him. He gave it. He was in full control of his own life. But when he did give it up, it was over. He was dead. At least for the moment, anyway. Now, some like to say that Jesus was only pretending to be dead. That his heart rate was so low that they couldn't detect it and that he was able to rest and recover in the tomb. He was just mostly dead, right? Now, if you think about all of the things leading up to the point of his actual crucifixion, it just, it's, it's in my opinion ludicrous to think that that he could survive that and even if he did right that three days in a tomb is sufficient enough to completely heal him so that when people saw him after the resurrection that he was perfectly fine no no with the stress and pain and injury that was inflicted on him during the crucifixion it just isn't possible there were hundreds of people that witnessed his death there was a sphere thrust into him where blood and water flowed. He wasn't merely swooning. He was dead. Then he was buried. Look at Mark chapter 15, verse 42 through 46. It was preparation day. That is, the day before the Sabbath. So as evening approached, Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent member of the council who was himself waiting for the kingdom of God, went boldly to Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. Pilate was surprised to hear that he was already dead. You see, they were so good at prolonging life that how could he be dead in just a day? Because they didn't kill him. He gave up his spirit. So Pilate summoned a centurion and he asked him if Jesus had already died. And when he learned from the centurion that it was so, he gave the body to Joseph. So Joseph bought some linen cloth, took down the body, wrapped it in the linen and placed it in a tomb cut out of rock, then rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Completely unusual for someone who is crucified to be buried. They would just leave the bodies there for days until, you know, scavengers and the sun uh, reduced them to nearly nothing and then they would just discard them. And here we have Pilate allowing Joseph to take Jesus and we know that he fulfilled prophecy even in that. He was buried in an unused tomb of a rich man. I believe that Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate. I believe that Jesus was crucified, dead, and buried. Now, the next statement has been a statement of controversy for years. There's much debate surrounding this statement. He descended into hell. What does that mean? What does the Apostles' Creed mean by that? Well, it is a statement about Jesus' three days. The three days that He was in the tomb, from His crucifixion to His resurrection. And truth be told, Scripture tells us very little about What happened there? The most commonly cited biblical passages are Acts chapter 2, 31, Ephesians 4, 8, and 10, and 1 Peter 3, 18 through 20. And 
And I believe, as I've researched this, that a close reading of Acts 2.31, it clears it up for me. In fact, knowing when the Apostles' Creed was written, how it was written, I think also helps our understanding of that. Um, Acts chapter 2, verse 31, up here. Uh, Seeing what was ahead, he spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to the grave, nor did his body see decay. Okay? Speaking of the resurrection, and and that Jesus' body was not abandoned there, and, and, and that it didn't see decay. Now, that's the New International Version's translation of that passage. And... And the New International Version is what they call a dynamic translation. As they translate the New American or the, the New International Version, they do a little bit of, of interpretation along the way to help make us understand it better, to make it uh, more readable. Now, the New American Standard, Acts chapter 2, verse 31, put that up there on the screen, Roy. This is what it says. He looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of the Christ that he was neither abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh suffer decay. Now, the New American Standard is more of a literal translation, trying to, to go more word for word, as, as, you know, translating from one language to another can go. And in fact, they keep, they keep the Greek word in there, Hades, and that is very important for the description of, of this part in the Apostles' Creed. Now, when I was in Minnesota last week, I emailed one of, one of the profs at Bethel Seminary, and I was really hoping to sit down across from a desk from him and say, tell me what this means. What does the Apostles' Creed mean by this? And I got an email the next day back from, from Professor Brown, and she said, well, actually, I'm, I'm teaching in San Diego right now. And I thought, oh, bummer to be in San Diego and not Minnesota, right, in March, although there was no really snow in Minnesota. It was really, I mean, we went for walks without coats, so... Um, but, but she turned me to uh, an article that was written by a former systematic theologian, Millard Erickson, who also taught at Bethel for a period of time. And this is what, this is what he says. He says, This phrase, he descended into hell, echoes Acts chapter 2, verse 31, and seems to be there simply to make the point that Jesus' death was real and complete. Okay? Jesus went to Hades, which in the Greek signifies the world of the departed. Paradise for some, pain for others. And when the Apostles' Creed was translated into English in the 16th century, they translated the word Hades to hell. And when we think of hell today, what do we think of? We think of that last place for people who have not put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, which Jesus refers to in the New Testament as Gehenna. He uses a totally different word. All right? Keep, keep tracking with me here. So as far as the creed is concerned, it is referring to the world of the departed, not the final state of the lost, not hell in the English version as we think of hell, but Hades as a place of, of paradise for some, pain for others. Now, I don't, you know, I don't get all of it. There, there's still a good portion of this that's a mystery. But to me, that, that really helps settle something in my, in my mind. Because there are, there are people that teach that Jesus descended to hell, into that place. And, 
And, and I'm, just, I'm just not convinced of that. And, and I think this, uh, this description in Acts chapter 2, verse 31, explains it well. All right, Ephesians chapter 4, verses 8, 9, and 10. This is what it says. Paul says, When he ascended on high, he led captives in his train and gave gifts to men. What does he ascended mean except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions? He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. And this is another verse that those who would like to say that he, that he went to hell or Gehenna point to, that, that he went to these some sort of lower earthly regions. And as I read that, what I'm seeing is that Jesus descended from his realm in heaven to the earth and then deeper into the ground as far as being buried... And then, of course, we know that when he rose again, he did what? He ascended back to heaven. And then the other verse is 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 18 through 20. And this is what it says. For Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive by the Spirit, through whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison who disobeyed long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. In it, only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water. Now, as I've thought about that and as I've read stuff on that, it's just not clear at all what Peter is talking about there, other than the first part of that, that Christ died for our sins. When it it talks about him um, preaching to the spirits in prison, I'm uh, from Acts chapter from Acts chapter 2, I'm left to assume that that was Hades and that somehow in, in, in this, this place where, where there was paradise for some and pain for others, he's preaching something in the Spirit. That's as far as my understanding goes. And, and I'm going to default here to, um, to Robert Mounts in his commentary, Living Hope, This is what he says, that this 1 Peter passage is widely, and I quote, widely recognized as perhaps the most difficult to understand in all of the New Testament, unquote. So what have we learned before in in years past what to do with Scripture? Well, we, we move from that which is clear towards that which is unclear. And for me, the passage in Acts chapter 2, verse 31 is pretty clear in its description. However, I don't fully understand it, but, but it's as clear as I can get. And I'm just perfectly fine with saying that the, the passage in 1 Peter is a mystery. But that line in, in the Apostles' Creed is there simply to let us know that Jesus was dead that he experienced the same death that we do. He died physically and he was put in the tomb. He wasn't kind of dead. He didn't simply look dead. He was. And if you want to say in the Apostles' Creed that he descended into hell, you need to recognize that hell means Hades. If you want to say that he descended into the realm of the dead, that it, it, it um, fairly uh, mirrors Acts chapter 2, verse 31. I actually prefer to do what the New American Standard did in interpreting Acts chapter 2, verse 31 and say that he descended into Hades. That seems pretty clear and in line with what Scripture says. 
Erickson says it this way, There is one thing of which we can be certain. Jesus' death was a literal event, not some temporary state of unconsciousness. Hence, in His resurrection, Christ did indeed conquer death, both in its spiritual and physical forms. I believe that Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate. Do you? I believe that Jesus was crucified, was dead, and was buried. Do you? I believe that the third day He rose from the dead. (laughs) Amen. That is the good news here. That is the news that when we face the darkest of times in our life, that we can look to that and we can hold on to that and we can say, you know what? Jesus conquered death. I am in Christ and in Christ. I can do all things. Even face whatever it is I'm facing. Remember this block right here? Some of you may be new enough to the church that, that you don't, but this is, this is what we call... This is a Jenga block. If, if you know what the game Jenga is, where you stack all of those little blocks in a stack and then you pull them out one at a time, you know, and whoever pulls the one out and the thing falls down loses the game, right? And, and two years ago, I think it was, on an Easter morning, we, we built a giant Jenga tower with these Jenga blocks. And, and there was one on the very bottom. I mean, it was like 10 or 11 blocks high. It was really tall. There's a picture on the wall in the foyer if you want to look at it on your way out. And uh, the bottom one had a picture of the empty tomb on it. And others had other things like, you know, doing good things as a Christian and worshiping the Lord and other things like that. In fact, this is one of them. It had hands on it. And, and uh, I actually forget what the hands... I think actually that was praise. That was part of the worship one. But there was one on the bottom corner that, that had the empty tomb and it, it represented the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And the fact that you can, you can believe all of these other things and unless you believe that Jesus rose from the dead... Everything that you believe out here is empty. It, it means nothing. Paul, in fact, says it is a waste of time if you don't have the foundational block. And, and of course, you know, as illustrations go, we pulled it out at the end of the message and it all came crashing down and we all lived and, and it was a great illustration that... That, that if we build our life on all of these other things and we forget that one, we don't believe that one, that, that ultimately we have no hope. But we do have hope. Because Jesus lives. Jesus lives. Acts chapter 2, verse 24 says this, but God raised Him from the dead, freeing Him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on Him. Now the hymn in this verse is Jesus Himself and it says it was impossible for death to keep a hold on Him. Impossible. When you and I face things that seem impossible, we need to remember this verse that conquering death wasn't even impossible for Jesus Christ. And then we need to add in Romans chapter 6, verses 8 and 9 that says, Now if we died with Christ, we believe that he will also that we will also live with Him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, He cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over Him. Nothing masters Jesus Christ. 
Oh, there were those that thought it, that they had for a time. Satan may have even thought he won for a period of time. But Jesus was raised from the dead and death no longer has mastery over him. Death cannot take Jesus down. He couldn't do it. And likewise, when we give our lives to Jesus, we will also live with Him. Death and sin doesn't have mastery over us either. Not in Christ. Not in Christ. And then 2 Timothy chapter 1, end of verse 9 and beginning of 10 says this, This grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time. Before the beginning of time! Incredible. But it, but it has now been revealed. Remember, Paul talks about the mystery all the time. Through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who has destroyed death and has brought life and immortality to light through the Gospel. He destroyed death. He got in the ring with it. He went a few rounds. And He didn't just beat it. He destroyed it. Death couldn't keep its hold on him. Now, as I mentioned earlier, Jesus was an historical person just like you, just like me. And he was subject to the historical method like any other person who ever lived on this planet. And, and there were people who were eyewitnesses of his life. They, they saw the things that he did. They watched him. They, they followed his life through till his crucifixion. They saw him die. There were, there were people that wrote down his words and later historians sorted out what had been written and it's all preserved for us. In fact, within one generation of Jesus' life, while there were still eyewitnesses on the planet who could rise up and say, that's not true. We know that didn't happen. This was all written down for us in the Gospels. There were over 500 people who saw him alive after his resurrection who could have risen up and said, it's all a lie. But they didn't. Because it was true. Because it happened. Now Stephen Bradbury, age 28, of Australia, hasn't always been known for his prowess on the ice. In fact, you might say he is an accident waiting for a televised event to happen. In 1994, Bradbury cut his leg in a World Cup skating competition and almost bled to death, losing four liters of blood and receiving 111 stitches. In the year 2000, he crashed headfirst into the boards while training and broke his neck. And he chose to defy doctors who told him that if he skated again, he risked permanent paralysis. He staged a comeback in time for the 2002 Winter Olympic Games in Salt Lake City. Stephen Bradbury was, in many commentators' opinions, the least likely skater to win a medal, any medal, at the Games. And yet he won gold. Bradbury's victory is remarkable, not only because he had encountered so many setbacks and defeats, but because he won it after the other four skaters in the event fell down just before the finish line. Good for Bradbury, that's for sure. You could almost see Bradbury thinking, I'm still standing. I'm, I'm crossing the finish line. I just won the race. Now, there's a principle in sports, and it's this. If your opponent gives you everything they have and you survive it, you win. 
The NCAA tournament's going on right now. 68 teams, who knows? In, the, in another couple of years, it could be 100 teams, for crying out loud. Anyway, um, 68 teams. And in a couple weeks, it's going to be down to two. And after one final game, there's going to be one team who is what? The champions, the winner. They, they took everything that every other team threw at them. Their, their, their press defense and, and their zone and, and, and their man-to-man and all of that. And they rose above all of it. They took all of it and they scored more points in every game. And they're the last one standing. They win. In fact, boxing actually is... Uh, it, it, this quite literally is true in boxing. The last man standing wins. Now here's the application of the message today. The devil threw everything he could at God. Everything he had, he threw it at Jesus. He threw mocking, he threw stress, he threw pressure, he threw pain and agony. All of the things that we experience in life, Jesus experienced them. The Bible is clear on that. And it doesn't matter what we're going through, good things, bad things, things that are neither. We have hope for today and for eternity if we put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ as Savior because He is still standing. He lives today. He lives today. And this isn't some make-believe thing. It's based on true events from history. If there had been video cameras in Jesus' day, there would be video evidence. If there had been smartphones, there would be thousands of video out there of His death and of Him alive. Well, we have the next best thing to video evidence, right? Eyewitness, recordings. Uh, Mick Kondrak told me that that Bill O'Reilly's Killing Jesus is going to be on sometime this week. And and, and he said if there's one... Bill O'Reilly said this, if there's one thing about the Romans, they knew how to write stuff down. It's it's not just the Bible that tells us that Jesus was alive and that He was crucified. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, the Maker of heaven and earth. And in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into Hades, and the third day He arose from the dead. That's where our hope is. It's in the living Christ. Let's live our life that way. And let's tell all of our friends about it. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank You. Thank You for being our Savior. Thank You for giving us hope. Thank You for the truth that while we were yet and are yet sinners, You died for us. And thank you that as you explain and as your word explains that if we confess with our mouth that you are Lord and we believe in our hearts that you died and rose again that we will be saved. Oh Lord, may that be true for every one of us in this room. And as we live the often difficult lives that we live in, may we constantly go back to the resurrection and that Death no longer has any sting. Death no longer has any victory over us. Even if we were physically dead, oh, it would be a glorious day as Christ followers. Thank you for what you did on the cross.
Help us to celebrate that every day in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. As we close the service here, the ushers are going to take up our morning offering.